The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Um, I started to uh, uh, walk with the Lord and I began to read the Bible. I read the New Testament and I was blown away at how I didn't have like an adult understanding of the Bible. I still had like a kid's understanding. I had memorized plot. So, you know, what happens? Oh, that's the story where this guy does this. But I wasn't like thinking dialectically or, or like in a mature sense about the Bible. I wasn't like, I didn't know how to eat it and then actually be changed by it and live differently in the world. And so I realized there was a kid's understanding, which is great, but I'm not a kid, right? So even though I had a lot of the passages memorized, I would read them and I would realize, oh my word, this is speaking to me about like my life. Like this is the word of God saying, Garrett, you know, be different. <laughs> And uh, that was shocking to me. So then I was done the New Testament, and I was like, well, then what do I do? And I was like, I guess I'll read the New Testament again. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe I should give the Old Testament a whirl. <laughs> and so I went back and read Genesis, and then I read Genesis two times in a row. And then I was like, and one of the categories that got blown apart for me was seeing Christ in the Old Testament and, and seeing the continuity of Scripture and being able to hear the gospel preached and understanding it, because I had New Testament light and could go backwards into the Old Testament and actually feed on Christ there, that was really helpful. That's sort of my goal. So the, this is the story of the Ark, Noah's Ark, and um, basically, the you know, Paul says in First Corinthians that the whole Testament was written down basically so that we would have examples, so that we would know how to think about things really um, symbolically, and that gets fleshed out especially in Galatians. How do I read this thing and understand them as structures that get overlaid into every generation and then make sense of the world and of humanity sort of in the next sort in the next episode? Like over and over and over. And so when I started to feed on the Bible this way, I began to be greatly encouraged and I and um that's my hope. So right off out the gate, I would say this. I think if you're a Christian or if you've spent any time in church, you probably know the ark is a symbol of salvation. The ark's a symbol of salvation. And so clearly that's going to be Jesus. So we can say, look, there's still an ark that will rescue people from destruction. And it's Jesus. And it is, right? But specifically, I think what fleshes out in the word of God as one unit is that, and this is why Jesus is called the word, is that it's the word of God that is the safe, safe refuge for people. Jesus ultimately and perfectly, yes, but how do I do that? How do I open the door of the ark for people? How do I actually call people in? It's through the preaching of your word. It's the gospel being shared. So when I say to someone, this is the gospel, right? Oh, you're broken and stuff because you've got a sin issue that hasn't been dealt with. Whatever aspect of the gospel I'm going to share with someone. Oh, there is a way to actually be sane. There is a way to have peace and joy and righteousness in the Holy Spirit here and now. That's, those are promised down payments of the kingdom for this life. I, I preach the gospel. I'm opening the door of the ark. Okay? That's the setup. That's where we're going. Genesis chapter 8, beginning at verses 1 through 19. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. 
At the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Incidentally, um, this guy William Lincoln, theologian, says in the Jewish calendar, that's the day that actually Christ rose from the grave as well. So there's a corollary there. Uh, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I'm going to borrow a little bit of content from before and after this as well. So if you don't know this story, um, in a couple verses, the covenant is established with Noah. Okay, And one of the things you want to know up front is that God puts a sign of the covenant in the sky. It's a rainbow. And God says, whenever, and I'm going to reference this, so just so you know, this is a little forward. God says, whenever you see the rainbow, I want you to know that I am remembering you, right? We think intuitively, the rainbow is there so that I'll remember that God won't ever destroy the world with water again. That's an aspect of it, right? But God, at God's language is, um, actually, I'll just go there. Uh, this is the verse 12 of chapter nine. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you. For all future generations, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Now there's a remembrance that's going back and forth that, that we're going to talk about a little bit. So know that that's there in the word, I'm not making it up, okay? So throughout the beginning of Genesis, the reader encounters a few men. If you were to go back to the beginning, you would see a handful of guys who've stood in opposition to the slipstream of decline that takes place throughout the world after the fall. After the fall, it's literally um, everything starts to fall apart. And there's lots and lots of rebellion. And there's occasionally uh, a remnant who would stand in opposition to the decline. These men are marked primarily by one quality, right? Faith in God. The scriptures tell us that their faith was reckoned to them as righteousness. Thank God, because oftentimes they were racists and sexist and there were 
they had a, a bunch of problems laterally. We think of people like Abel and Enoch and Noah. In chapter 7 of Genesis, the world was doomed to destruction. This was not happening because God was mean or because God was the type of parent to fly off the handle. God is just. So what he does is right. The word justice and righteousness are actually the same, same root, same word. That means he does what's right. Human sin had corrupted the earth. It was willful human sin that wrecked everything. Not a default in God's genetic code, not, not um, a, something in his periphery that he missed. So according to justice, God has a right to actually destroy everything. It's his sandbox. He built it. If someone gets to knock it down, he does, right? It's ownership. It belonged to him. He established the terms of the covenant and he made an agreement. And who broke it? God or humans? Humans. Humans broke the terms. Therefore, God is consistently in the position of being right in whatever he does. We broke it. We broke his stuff. We broke the agreement and the contract. God is just and right at this point now to take everything away via whatever mechanism he sees fit. Now that is, whether that's flood, whether that is individual death, or whether that's hell, God remains just to say, I didn't break the terms, you did. We agreed to this. And the Bible says this. If you think, well, I didn't, that's not fair. I, if I was there, I would have... Uh, I would have acted differently. And the Bible says, that's not the way genetics works. The truth is, you were in your dad when your dad chose to, chose to disobey. And you were disobeying in your dad. And so you did disobey. There, was no, there is no rewinding the tape and going back and saying, well, I'd like a fair shake at this one. You had a fair shake and you lost it. That's in God's mind. When he's reading the code, he goes, look, there you are right there. Okay? God doesn't only do that render out destruction and, and judge. He doesn't only do that in the Noah story and in our story or the story of anybody you meet in the streets of Manchester. He also has mercy on some. So it's not just that God single-handedly says, yep, everybody broke it, you all did, and I get to knock down the sandcastle and everyone who's in it gets knocked down. He doesn't only do that, although he does render judgment and destruction. He also renders mercy to some and says, not that one, not that one, not that one, right? And so God extends both judgment and mercy. Mercy is categorized as non-justice, non-justice. R.C. Sproul's helpful in this, um, if you, uh, in the way it's framed up and makes it thinkable, okay? He says there's justice and it has its category. And then there's non-justice, and that has its category. But non-justice has two columns. Non-justice has injustice, that's the bad one, and it has mercy. Mercy is not injustice, but it's not justice, okay? So the options then regarding law and order are either justice or non-justice. But non-justice includes those two categories of both injustice and mercy. Mercy is not justice, but it's not injustice. Okay? That's the case because in mercy, the penalty of sin is still being absorbed. 
but it's being absorbed willfully, willingly, by the one having been sinned against, so that it might not have to be absorbed by the one having done the sinning. So there's still an exacting. God, as we said, had a right to destroy all of creation, and he would have been just for doing so. But because he allowed a representative population to be spared, in our passage, it's Noah's, Noah and his family. But that's a type. That's a type of, of election. It's a type of salvation. Everyone has sinned. None do right. None are righteous. None seek after God. Right? No one. But yet, because of the mercy of God, some are saved from the destruction. Because he allowed a representative population to be spared, we see right here on the very, this is page six in my Bible, right at the beginning, we see God's character emerging as being complex. That means God in the very beginning is operating with the, within the capacity for justice and non-justice, for judgment and mercy. Simultaneously on page six, we would actually see it even on page two, right from the beginning. Okay, that's important because people often want to accuse God in the Old Testament of being ruthless and exacting. That's the, um, the perspective of the third servant in the parable of the talents. I know who you are. You expect to get blood from a turnip. You, you don't invest money and yet you want to make a profit. You're ruthless and exacting and no one can please you. Then go to hell. That's what the master says. Go to hell. That's literally what he said. He says, that's your perspective of me? Depart from me into darkness and torment and fire forever. What? Whoa. Wicked, wicked heavy. That's wild. But the other two, the defining difference here is the other two in the parable of the talents have no such perspective of him. Yet their accomplishments are varied. And they're both blessed and honored because they brought forth fruit in, in accordance with their faith and who the master was. The New Testament teaches that the God of the Old Testament is actually most plainly seen in the person of Jesus. That Colossians passage says that the light that has shone, just like from Genesis 1, the light that's shone out of darkness shows us who God is in the face of Jesus. Like we can look upon Christ. You can't look on God the Father, you'll die, right? But in, in Jesus, there's a divine icon, an image that you're allowed to look upon and say, what would he look like if I saw him? Now, we don't look on him literally. We behold him in faith. We behold him in faith because the form that I would see is the character of God, not how, how much his nose sticks out or not how high his cheekbones are, right? I'm not looking on Jesus like that to see what God looks like. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And here in the story of Noah's Ark, we're seeing the intersection of justice and mercy, which is a foreshadow of these great themes that will unsurpassingly intersect at the cross. Okay? I think we're going to actually un unlock the zip file and see lots of Jesus back here. I think that's what we're supposed to be able to do. In our passage today, we see the storm of God's wrath. The storm of God's wrath being quelled. 
flood goes on for 150 days after which the waters begin to recede. We're getting closer to the reestablishment of the covenant between God and creation. I read you a portion of that in chapter 9. And represented by Noah. But first, we look at the word of God concerning his judgment and his salvation. His judgment and his salvation. In our passage, those are going to be symbolized as the flood and the ark. His judgment and his salvation, the flood and the ark. Theologically, this event, this ark, flood and ark event, is a proto-judgment and proto-redemption. That's a scenario that will keep showing up throughout the Bible, culminating, obviously, most importantly, at the cross of Christ, and fanning out from there, literally, into the way we talk to somebody about what is it that you're so troubled about. The, the Bible says that one of the great things we're delivered from when we're delivered to Christ is the bondage of the fear of death that pagans live, on, live in. They're in bondage to the fear of death. That's, you're delivered from that in Christ. The theme of judgment and salvation obviously runs straight to the cross of Christ and they fan out from there into the story of every single human being. Those who are damned and those who are redeemed. Those outside the ark and those inside. Let's go to verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. The very first thing we see in this passage is the description of God as remembering his people. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock. God, rem God remembered his redeemed people, the people he was saving. This is covenantal language. This is extended even to creation outside of humanity, right? When God is in relationship with people, God compels them to covenantally remember him. There's, there's two-way traffic. We do this every time we celebrate communion, right? It tells, tells his people that he remembers them. I remember you. You remember me. This do in remembrance of me. I won't do this again until you're with me. I'm remembering that I'm not with you, and so I'm fasting while you're feasting. That's Jesus' mindset about it, about his covenantal relationship with his people. Why is that important? Well, take, for example, what we have here. We have a believer Right? We have Noah. Noah and his family are going through a kind of hell. Okay? Okay, now all of a sudden it seems like maybe this could be street level. There's a believer and his family who are going through hell. A kind of hell. Okay. They're saved from the wrath of God. Amen. They're Christians. Okay? Cool but they're not removed from any proximity 
to hell, to the judgment of God, to all the chaos. They're buffeted, actually, by the waves. They're in the dark. They're tossed about in a boat, slamming. Everyone they know, everything they know, is being destroyed feet away from them. They undoubtedly must feel alone and scared. They're disciples in a boat in a storm that threatens to kill them. God's called Noah to repopulate the earth and to care for creation. And here, month after month, it seems like that might never come. We read quickly through the story of Abraham in a handful of chapters forward from here. But if you like slowly like build a little graph, you're talking about someone's entire life. Someone's entire life that a promise was made and not given to them. Not days and days of waiting for God to be faithful to do what he said he would do. A whole lifetime. Sarah dies and doesn't see her boy even have a wife. And yet it's his children that are going to be the fruit of God's promise that I'll be faithful to do what I said. Abraham is dying and putting his house in order. And he's like, my boy doesn't have a girl still. Constantly. They're 100 years old when they're given the baby. Wait, wait. Wait, how many times did they go through temptation and seasons of trying to fix this thing on their own? Besides Hagar and Ishmael, right? Constantly trying to save their own skin. Constantly. Possibly, we, we don't know how many times they're actually tempted. Everything Noah and his family, this church folk, sort of going through hell. Everything they know is being torn down and they're bobbing along in a sea of chaos, clinging to the promise of God. Chaos. That's actually the word for water. That's the definition of the the floods. Chaos. Just like it is in the beginning of Genesis. The waters in, in in the Genesis creation account are chaos. They're bobbing along in a sea of chaos with the promise of God. A promise that God has a plan that would require them to be able to live. Abraham, we're told, assumed, in Hebrews, assumed he was going to have to go through and kill the boy. And that God, the only thing he could think of was that God must raise him from the dead. This boy has to be alive to have babies. He must going to be raising him from the dead. What is Noah and his family? What are they thinking? (coughs) They need to be alive for the promise to come to pass. That God's going to use them to populate the earth and care for creation. And God had a Jesus promise that wasn't named yet that he actually sewed into the fabric of their family. How's that going to come about? I mean, how long is the flood going to last? And then if it recedes, what are they going to eat? What's going to happen? Right? Right? Where's the stuff going to come from? Is it just them forever? Like, could, it, could God have really meant that? God hadn't called them to himself. God hadn't gotten them saved. They weren't outside the ark. God hadn't gotten them saved in order to abandon them in the same storm of his wrath that was stored up for rebels. God 
We're told in verse one, God remembered Noah and everything he saved. God remembered Noah and everything he saved. God doesn't forget about the work he started. David sings this in the Psalms over and over and over. This is the story of the people of God. In the Old and New Testament, God hasn't forgotten us. Why do you keep saying that? Because <laughs> sometimes it feels like he has, right? God has not forgotten his people and will never forget his people. Psalm 74, 2. Remember your congregation, the one that you purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you've dwelt. A lot of the language of this passage reminds us of Genesis 1, and it should. The, the Bible, um, especially big chunks of the Old Testament, are to be read sort of like a, sort of like a musical piece. In a musical piece, if, I, if you were to ask what the theme of the song is, it doesn't mean what the lyrics are saying necessarily. The theme is the repeated pattern. Right? There's a pattern that repeats. And so it's like, every time you hear this thing come back and it goes, and it's like, oh, every like six minutes you hear that thing, right? That's the theme. It's laying out the structure of, of what's um, through repetition. This, uh, we're, we're only seven chapters past Genesis 1, okay? But you're going to see, if, you're, if you only read Genesis, you're going to see repetition of theme constantly. And it's going to keep going through both Testaments as well. There's one guy. Okay, this is our chapter now. I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. There's one guy and his family who are responsible for populating the whole earth, right? There are only a few of every kind of critter. They're starting all, all the way back at the beginning, even with all this stuff, dogs and whatever, right? And they're responsible, all of them, alone for being fruitful and multiplying in order to fill the earth. What happens in verse 1? of chapter 8, right? In verse 1 of chapter 8, God causes wind to blow. Where? Over the waters. Wind blows over the waters. And what happens? Well, land begins to separate from water. That's all happening there, right? This is the recurrence of theme. Unlike the first act of creation, however, now God doesn't call people or bring forth people from the ground. He's calling them out of the ark. Now God's people in this new theme of creation, this new creation, he's calling them out of the source of salvation. That's going to continue to be a theme throughout the entire Bible. In fact, you're actually called by Jesus' name. You're born of his spirit. And so that theme, you know, runs all the way right into our gospel passages in the New Testament, Right? Unlike the first act of creation, God is now calling people out of the ark. He doesn't bring them forth out of the ground. And what this tells us is that God's plan is becoming more centrally rooted in his work of salvation. That's going to continue narratively to, to be a shift that takes place in scripture, progressively revealing more and more of the details that this plan is about a, a mega salvation, a big salvation. And it's going to become more and more present with more details and it's going to be pulling up all the stories from the past in order to use them thematically and telling sort of new structure that weaves it all together. The people are actually cut from the cloth of their savior by being called out of the ark. To put it more plainly, the new people on a new earth project will become more and more centered in his plan of salvation. Food, 
which will keep humans alive, came from the ground. Then people came from the ground. But now the ark is the clear statement of salvation. And the saved people are called from it. The camera throughout the biblical narrative is going to continue to drift more and more toward the truer Adam, towards the truer ark, ultimately to Christ, right? And his work on the cross and his work in the resurrection and his work in the ascension. In the Christian calendar, today is the um, Ascension Sunday. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. He's, what did he do when he ascended? He sat at the right hand of the Father and reigns with the Father. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, that's why we're doing missionary work, because the ascension is awesome, right? But it goes all the way back to the beginning and it keeps playing through. Let's go to verse 6. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he'd made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So the water has scoured the land. It's done. It's a rinse cycle, right? Washers being drained. It's a rinse cycle. It's all starting to, to um, recede. There are two points, I think, if you, if you read the Bible, um, there are two things that probably come to mind. Like, where does this theme show up again? This theme of washing with water. We, we use the New City Catechism at our church. The New City Catechism has this um, simple and sort of striking answer to the question of what is baptism. Baptism is the washing of with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You would think it would be something much more theological. Baptism is the sacrament or ordinance by which we, uh, and then sort of interject sort of a theology of baptism. But it's on purpose, right? It's the washing with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Bible throughout actually talks about baptism like a musical theme so that when, I, when a person's going to be baptized, we're supposed to have this breath of the work of God from the beginning up to our baptism and future that's in our minds. That we should be thinking like, God, this is special. This is God washing. This is God doing the washing. It should, it should have weight to it. He scoured the land and a washing has occurred. So two points maybe that would come to mind and we could wonder if they are connected intertestamentally. Could it be that the world underwent a form of baptism? Is that possible? Are we looking thematically, if I were to carry New Testament themes backward into the Old Testament, would it make sense for me to say, I think that the world was experiencing what we would call baptism? Is that possible? And secondly, where else in Scripture is washing with water used thematically? Where else does the theme show up? And how does the Bible, how does the word of God, the mind of God think about this symphony? 
If it shows up in the fourth movement, is it connected to its use in the first movement? Okay? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that's eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, his ascension. Baptism, he says, corresponds to this. To what? To the Noah Ark, Noah and the Ark story. Noah and the Ark story. That's a liaison for teaching baptism. The sinful man has died and the man of faith lives. The sinful man has died and the man of faith lives. One perishes outside the ark and the other lives within it. We die in the floodwaters and are raised to life in the ark, by the ark, right? We say this. It's going to be expounded in the New Testament. In Christ, you have, you have died in Christ and have been raised with him in newness of life. One guy dies and the one that's in the mode of salvation lives. That's what I'm saying when I'm baptized. That's why you don't baptize. Are you guys paedo baptists That's why you don't baptize people who aren't Christians. Right? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I would have been up for getting the kids real quick into the van. And <laughs> the other New Testament images that comes to mind might be the, the, what's described in Ephesians 5. When the husbands are told to wash their wives with the water of the word. With the water of the word. Because Christ has done this for his church. Now is there a relationship there? Ephesians 5 verse 26. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with, with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God did this in the flood. He washed the earth clean so that he would have new creation. This is a pro the new creation project. That's you, right? That's the world. Look, uh, go all the way to the end. You're going to keep seeing this. Go back to Amos. You're going to keep seeing this. Go into the prophets, Isaiah. What you're seeing is that in God's mind, he's consistently has, and this is why these movements exist in the symphony, he consistently has in his mind this idea that I want a place where everything on earth sort of clicks at this frequency. And the prophets, he actually says, you know what, I want, in, in the kingdom, when the earth is filled with the glory of God and everything's humming in the frequency that God has in his mind for how earth should work, he says, even the bells on the horses say on them, inscribed on them, holy unto the Lord. And the image there is 
God's mind for what the earth should look like is every time a taxi cab rounds the corner and honks its horn, the bells on a horse, uh, 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 the people on the sidewalk go, amen, amen. Everything is humming. God's new creation mindset about this is that even the horses that are pulling people to work go ding, 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 and everybody's like, praise God. Did you hear the horses this morning, the bells? Man, God loves us. This is so beautiful. Man, the trains are on time. Everything, everything. That's why in the New Testament it says, look, what are you doing, eating? Are you drinking, right? What are you, working, whittling wood, right? To the glory of God. So all the Protestant Reformation art is so great. The Dutch Reformed paintings, right? If you look at them, you get guys hacking up fish, and they got fish guts all over their apron, and they're just like, praise God, right? People pulling bread out of the oven, and they're just like, one. They got like glow around them because they're pulling the bread out because it's voca, vocation, right? This is my calling. What? To use my hands to the glory of God, to use my mouth to the glory of God, to eat the bread and slather it in butter to the glory of God. That's God's idea in his mind of what all these themes are tying into so that the earth will be filled with his glory. We, we said that, right, in one of our songs. Is there a connection here? Paul seems to be preaching the theme anyway in Ephesians 5 by the Holy Spirit. Is there a connection? It, there is, I believe, and uh, it takes a minute to load the GPS, so follow me here. The word for ark, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, the word for ark in, the, in Genesis in Hebrew is teba, teba, okay? It's only used one other time in the Bible. When? Anybody? It's okay. You can guess and be wrong. I'm not, you don't get. Basket of Moses. Yes, basket of Moses. My first guess was going to, I'm reading along, it's like the Ark of the Covenant, Right? That's what I thought, Ark of the Covenant. Only other time this word is used is in the naming of the basket into which Moses is placed and then placed in the water that he might be saved from the wrath of an ungodly king, right? The emphasis of the meaning is a place to keep something safe, okay? But the other word that we translate as Ark, the other word, box, like the Ark of the Covenant, is a different word, arone. The word teba, only used twice, okay? Noah's ark and Moses' ark, both uh, in order to keep the elect safe from wrath, wrath of a ruler, one ungodly, one godly, okay? The word teba shares the common origin with the word dabar. Teba, dabar, teba, dabar, dabar, dabar. You can hear it which is translated as word, word. So there's a long line of rabbis that have spilled ink on this relationship between Noah's Ark and the Word of God. The continuing application is plain. Safety and refuge for the people of God is found in the Word of God. The Word of God is consistently, all over the pages of this book, portrayed as a lifesaver lifesaver and it is you can't go to this book like it's a catalog of maxims for how to make wise financial decisions although it has that or um, 
you know, what verse should I read if my kid's getting married? Although it has that, right? This isn't a reference book. This is actually bread, and you'll die if you don't eat it. That's, th- that's actually what the Word of God says. It's actually bread and water. You will die if you don't. That's what it is. So as we saturate ourselves in the Word, as we literally go to it, like sometimes I'll preach the genealogy passages um, just to show like, oh, wow, we skip over this stuff. And if we went slow, if we treated it like it was tea, like we're making tea, and we're just like, give it like minutes, right? Give it some time. We'd find like, oh, little things. Sometimes the translation of a name. Why is somebody put in here? Why is she in here, right? Why is this little line here? You know, the guy that did this. Or, you know, this guy did something else. Or, or like in, uh, you know, where we are in Genesis 24, it's like this whole thing, this, uh, 20, 22, Genesis 22, it's the sacrifice of Isaac, right? And he doesn't get sacrificed, and you're like, no doubt, and it's all this whole narrative, this giant section where it's like, he doesn't do it, and it, I, if you know the story, you know this is a Jesus story, right? The father takes the son up the hill to kill the son, but he makes the son carry his own wood that he's going to be sacrificed on, and they get to the top of the hill, and and it's like stay, his hand is stayed, but the one that actually gets sacrificed is the ram and his head is caught up in thorns. So the thorns are all wrapped around his head and he ends up being offered and they say, but the, the God will actually pr- provide a lamb and he knows it because he says, I'll bring the boy back to my entourage that went with me to the hill but stayed a little ways away, right? And the entourage that's with him, he comes back and he says, I'll bring the boy back to you. But in his mind, he's thinking, I will, but not in the way they think I will because he's going to have to be raised from the dead. I mean, it's Jesus. The whole thing is Jesus. And then at the end of 22, at the end of 22, it's like, we've already done genealogies. But at the end of 22, it's like, and Melka and Bethuel had named, from Nahor had, uh, had Laban, the sister of Rebecca. And you're like, so what? <laughs> that was in a totally other region. Like, why slap this on at the end of 22? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. Because Jesus actually just rose from the dead. And what, he, and what God is telling you is that, and I'm preparing a bride for him in another land. You're like, oh, that's, his, that's the bride for the Jesus character. This is opera. This is awesome, right? It really is. The word of God is the lifesaver, and the ark should turn our attention to the word. Psalm 119, look on my, uh, verse 153, look on my affliction, deliver me, help, that's what he's saying, help, ah, why, why should I help you, I don't forget your law, where's his hope, the word of God, help me, I'm, I cling to your word, now if you don't, if you don't see that, listen to the next line, Plead my cause. Redeem me. Please. Why? Give me life. Because you've promised it. Clinging to his word. Right? Salvation is far from the wicked. They don't seek your statutes. They're drowning right outside the ark. I can hear them screaming. You're not saving them. But your mercy is great, O Lord. Give me life. Why? Because it says it in your rules. Clinging to the word of God. Saying, I know the damned, the wicked are, are damned. They do not cling to your word. Four times in a row, I do cling to your word. God, salvation is there. Hear me. Open the door. Refuge from disorder is found in the word of God. And he's calling his people into the safety of it. 
Those who don't trust in the word of God will not be saved, but are destroyed. Now, if you are a Christian, that means that you are going to say, this saved my life. This saves my life. My life is here. Now, if you're going to evangelize anyone in Manchester, you've got to know that you're calling them into the word of God. That has to be in your mind. That means all the more you should, you should be firmly rooted in the word. That when people ask you something, you can answer not just from what you creatively come up with in your brain, but like what God says. What does God say about anything, about everything? Those who don't trust in the word of God will not be saved, but are destroyed. The wicked will be destroyed because they flail outside the safety of the word of God. That's what Psalm 119 is telling us. That's what every theme is telling, every uh, recurrence of this theme is telling us. Just like the initial work of Adam and the work into which we see God commissioning Noah, God is calling his people now, us now, Christians now, into the work of establishing his kingdom on earth. We're to disciple the nations and pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We're to ask him for this. God, your kingdom, the way it is where you reign, anywhere you reign, where you are, make it that way in Manchester. That's commanded that that's the way you pray if you want to pray like God. If you want to pray the way God prays, he said, I'll teach you how to pray the way God prays. Make your kingdom come here on earth where I am, the way it is where you reign, where you are, unimpeded reign. Bring it here. And if you look, that's actually the glorious theme of the whole Bible. So by the time, by the time you get to the very end of the book, God has actually said, look, I got a gorgeous place, but I also, here's the cool thing. I've decided I want to move into your place and I'll bring my stuff. We're actually going to do it down here. And he superimposes his apartment onto our apartment and he brings his stuff down. That's why he's telling you to pray this way because it's actually in his mind already. He's actually already packing. He already knows. He's actually already moved in his record collection. He's like, already got it here. And he's like, I've kind of already started to move in, <laughs> right? I do have more stuff though. <laughs> That's exactly what the Bible is saying. Read the whole thing. That's what he's doing over and over again. Okay, so he tells us, pray this way. As, in Manchester, as it is in heaven. What would it look like? What would it look like, God? And this is, this is where you can develop prayer in your prayer closet, right? You stop at all these points of the Lord's prayer and you treat them like stations. And you stop and you pray the station for a little bit, okay? What am I saying when I say, in Manchester as it is in heaven. And you know that God has moved already, already moved some of his stuff in. If you're a Christian, you know that because he's already moved into you. And now you are the house of God. And so now you already know actually what is it meant for me and say like my wife and my kids and my dining room table. What was my dining room table used for before the kingdom moved into my home and my heart? Now, how has my dining room... I, I think about this, right? I, I lived in debauchery and in, in darkness before God called me out of sin. 
I was thinking of this the other day. I was sitting at my table, my dining room table, and one of my kids ran through the room singing the psalm we're working on. Up on the wall, we have a chalkboard, and we got a verse from one of the Psalter psalms that we work on as a family. And they ran through the room, and they're just, that's what's in their minds. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. Because I remember my house when I was in darkness, the debauchery, the darkness, that things like tables and kitchens were used for, things that made people laugh out loud in, in the living room. <laughs> Simple, innocent things make my kids laugh. They're sinners, right? But there's uh, this a different world in my house now. That's, you, that's yours too, if you're a Christian. There's a different world in your home, okay? The things you value the things you talk about. Your body is his. That means your speech is his. What is the difference? If the kingdom of God is among you, what's the difference? If you're a Christian of any age, you should know enough at least to say, I know what I'm saved from. Even if you're a little kid. If you became a Christian as a little kid and you're like, you know, the worst thing I can think of was that time that I said, oh heck, you know, and uh, in, in a, in a, begrudging manner you know your heart and you know the gospel because you've believed on it and and praise god that you've been given a good home and praise god that you know enough to say i don't want to leave this i may not know all the nuances of darkness but i don't want to leave this amen now what would manchester look like right and pray that pray that It's not rhetorical. He doesn't tell you to pray this way even though it might not happen. Not at all. We're praying in accordance with the word of God. Finally, if you read chapter 7, you would notice that the chapter had an unusual amount of mentioning of birds. The salvation of the winged creatures seems to take a place of prominence. And you don't want to avoid the obvious birds are now in chapter 8 used to navigate the transition from chaos to new earth. It's birds that are used as the mediators. If you were to ask the question, what's the smartest bird in the world? Ask your phone, ask your computers, look it up in a book. It would show you a picture of the Corvidae family of birds. Corvids, such as ravens, which are Corvus corax, have the same brain-to-body ratio as primates. In fact, that's why some ornithologists refer to them as winged primates. They're smart. Their brains are heavy. And if we take a long, use, a long view of the symbolic use of these birds, it seems that what Noah is doing is he's issuing the smartest bird first. But that bird is not used in the heralding, in heralding the emergence of the new earth. It's the dove. It's one of the simplest. It's a symbol of peace. And it's accompanied by a slow process of announcing the kingdom leaf by twig. That's what's used to usher in the kingdom, the new earth. God will use the simple and the peaceful to confound the wise and the powerful of this earth. That's a theme throughout the book. 
Not only that, though, Noah's sending of the birds is a sign that he was watching. You see the prophets do this. Watching the horizon and waiting, looking, waiting for the redemption of God. That's a lesson for us. We know this is fulfilled for us in Christ. And so in a newer sense, we're watching the horizon and waiting for the kingdom to be established on earth. We're praying, Father, cause the chaos to recede and bring the new earth. Father, bring a new order here the way it is where you are. And the reply is consistent throughout the Bible. It's not with the wisdom of the world. It's not with the power of Rome. It's with the gospel of peace and with the least of these that the kingdom will continue to emerge from the chaos. The good news is that Christ has already proclaimed himself as having the authority and the will to do this. We cling to this. Let's look at our last section, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, and God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Story of Noah's ark must always and continually be seen as vapid and elusive if it's ever disconnected from Christ, who is the substance of this story, to whom this story is only a shadow. Whether it's personal and temporal chaos, or worse, whether it's people you love undergoing the threat of hell and the chaos of a godless death, the promise of the gospel is that Christ alone is the refuge for anyone hoping to make it through the storm and that you are safe if you are in him. More than the storm that will spray water on your face, more than the waves that will threaten to capsize your boat, and more than the reality of uncharted waters into which you may find yourself being tossed. God is faithful. His word is trustworthy. God remembers his people. Christ in the supper compels us into a mutual remembrance. We remember the God who's told us, I will never forget you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Make us people, make us men and women of the word. Give us an infatuation and a love for the Bible. Embed it deeply into our hearts that we might have it as a base camp of operations at all times. Bring glory to yourself in all that we say and do and think and increase our love for one another and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.